Lights, camera, action. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. Hey, everyone. We hope you're all having a great day today. I know I am because we are going to be talking about one of my favorite movies of all time today. Yes, we are talking about Tron Legacy. So I won't waste any more time. Em, you want to hit us with those film details? I do. But before I do, I want to ask you. Yes. Have you seen the like because Tron Legacy is not the original Tron movie. Correct. Have you seen the first one? I have. You have? Yes. How does it compare? It's hard to compare because um, it was like one of the, I, I believe it was the first ever um, movie that was um, almost entirely uh, utilizing like computer images. Oh. Uh, so it, it was very much like a, like a visual spectacle mm-hmm. um, that exercised like amazing scenes and stuff and and there was a really good story but like looking back now it's very dated Mm -hmm. so it's very good but i like this one much better just because it's a more up-to-date story i guess is it like the same storyline plot line though no oh it's not i mean there there are similar threads Mm -hmm. but definitely not like the same story okay i was just curious because i knew that it was not the original Tron. Like I knew there was a movie before it, but I had never seen it. So I was just curious if it was similar. This movie is not like a reboot or anything. Tron Legacy is a continuation. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. Sorry about that sidetrack. Um, so I'll go ahead and start with our introductory details. So Tron Legacy was released on December 17th of 2010. It was directed by Joseph Kaczynski. It is starring Garrett Hedlund, Jeff Bridges, and Olivia Wilde. It was just distributed by Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures. It has a runtime of two hours and five minutes. It's rated PG, and its budget was $170 million, but the box office total was $400.1 million. So it did pretty well. Yeah, did okay. Not amazing, but... yeah. They profited. Yes. And I can go ahead and jump into fun facts, too. I actually have, I don't have quite as many as I usually do, but the ones I do have, I think, are pretty cool. Okay, great. So first one is that Daft Punk did the score for the movie, and they are featured in the scenes in that club where uh, Sam and, uh, what's her name? What's the girl's name? Who, which <laughs> the, you, there are multiple girls. Which one are the, you referencing? Well, I guess the it starts out with the one with the white hair, but then it ends with the one the black hair when they're in the club looking for Zeus. Yeah, reference. Are you talking about Olivia Wilde's character? Yeah, I can't remember her name. Oh, um, I can't remember her name either. Not off the top of my head. Well, either way, they so Daft Punk is. Thank you. Yes, Cora is her name. <laughs> Cora. Daft Punk is featured in the scenes when they're looking for Zeus and get into the fight and everything. Um, but they even, Daft Punk even held a rave on set one night during production. The cameras weren't working and it had been like a couple hours and everyone was in costume, but they couldn't film. So they just ha- started having a rave in the warehouse of Wow. Tron. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, great idea. And yeah. props to Daft Punk. I mean, they're literally 
DJs, musicians. So why not if you got time to kill? Yeah. That's hilarious. So my next one is um, in the arena scenes when, um, you know, Sam like first gets to the grid and um, they're having the fights and everything against the programs. Yeah. With the disc battles. Yes. yes. So the, you know, you, you get like brief shots of like, you know, the fans and the stands of the arena and stuff. Yes. Fans at a Comic-Con actually voiced those fans in the arena. Yes. Yeah. So Joe Kaczynski, who is the director, he said in an interview, this is his quote, we were just starting the sound portion and the guys at the sound studio were telling me, you have all these arenas and all these specific chants, and that's a very hard thing to fabricate. You've got to find a thousand people who are willing to follow chants. So we were looking at sports arenas and I realized, wait a minute, I've got Comic-Con coming. So he said, let's record the Comic-Con hall and get our crowd reactions. And so they did it. And all the crowds in the Disc War sequence were Comic-Con fans. And um, I just thought that was really cool. That they it's awesome. I actually have that in my production details, too. So I'll just talk about what I found now, which isn't a lot more than what you already brought up, but um, just that the crowd that's seen there, mm-hmm. they're all CG, but all the sound that's present, like the the chants and everything, that's mm-hmm. all from that Comic-Con group. Right. And um, it was during a Tron Legacy panel at SDCC, San Diego Comic-Con in mm-hmm. 2010. So the director uh, teamed up with some sound text from Skywalker Sound, which for those of you who don't know, that is a sound division of Lucasfilm, which is a film company founded by George Lucas, and it's housed at Skywalker Ranch, which is a massive ranch that George Lucas owns. Mm -hmm. Um, But anywho, um, they teamed up with Skywalker Sound, and Kaczynski and his production team uh, got a hold of like the the large screen that they were showing like the the trailer for uh, Mm -hmm. Tron Legacy. They put together like directions for the crowd and they told them like, hey, you want to be a part of the movie? And everybody got excited and everything. So they told them, you know, like they wanted them to chant like Clue's name. Clue, Clue, Clue. They did like that and they had booing and cheers and clapping and stomping their feet, all that stuff. And every single thing that they had them do made it into the final cut of the movie. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, super cool. So my next fact is that Tron Legacy was the first 3D movie to integrate a fully digital head and body on an existing actor to create a younger version of him. So obviously it's Jeff Bridges' character. So And I mean, they not only created a younger version of him, but also used that same um, digital whatever it's called. Double the... Yeah, whatever. To be Clue. And... Wouldn't it be the same for Alan and yes. Tron yes. too? Yeah. Yep. They also created a younger Alan brand. Which yes. Which I didn't know until the most recent time that we watched it when you pointed it out to me. I never put that together. Oh, that Tron is modeled after Alan? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I guess there's just not enough like really good shots of him to where I was like. Yeah. I he plays a much bigger role in the original movie. Mm. So it was kind of the thing like if you had seen it, it's a lot easier to pick up on. Mm-hmm. Because that, like, one of the whole premises of the original movie is, like, creating a digital double of yourself once you get into the grid. Mm-hmm. So once Alan got in, he created Tron and yeah. and so on and so forth. And this is a sidebar, but just since we're talking about Alan, 
I didn't write this down, so I might get it wrong, but I believe that I read that Alan actually wasn't supposed to be in this movie originally. Oh, really? Um, But they just had a lot of people who were like really pushing for it. And so that's why they ended up putting him in. That's cool. I, I'm glad that they did because he, I don't know, he fulfills this role that is very minimal. Right. But it. It, ha- it does have an impact. It's not like a huge impact on the audience, but I- it just really progresses the story well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So my next one is that both Garrett Hedlund, who plays Sam, and Olivia Wilde, who plays Cora, received parkour training and martial arts training in preparation for their roles. Yes, I did see that. They actually worked with the same team. I think their name is 87 Productions or something like that. I I know it's wrong, so I apologize, but um, they're the same team that trained all the the guys to be Spartans for 300, Oh, which cool. is not a movie that I'm recommending or have I seen, but mm-hmm. I know that it was like those guys got jacked for that movie, <laughs> and uh, so it was just interesting that it was the same team. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next one is that Steven Lisberger, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced that name, he's the director of the original Tron. And producer of Tron Legacy. Yes. He has a cameo in this movie as the bartender at the club that they have the little fight scene. In. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, next. So the, the light discs that the programs all wear on their backs. Yes. They contained 134 LED lights and attached to the suits with magnets. And they also contained the batteries that powered the lights in the suits. They were really heavy, though, so the actors had to be careful when they threw them on the set. And then also, each battery that powered the lights only lasted 12 minutes. So they had to turn them on right when they began filming and shut them off immediately after just to kind of save the power. Yeah. Yeah. And the suit's circuitry and wiring was really fragile, so the actors couldn't sit down in between takes. So they had these, like, boards made that they they could lean against. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. That's cool. And my last fact, which you possibly might have some extra details on this, but okay. shooting the film only took 64 days. Yes. But post-production lasted 68 weeks Yes, because of the heavy amount of CGI and special effects that went into all of that. So, yeah, it, very uh, crazy. I didn't really cover it, um, but yes, yeah. I saw that too, because... Well, is that is that all you had? That's all I had. Well, then yep. I'll just segue right into what I have. Yep, go for it. Which is that uh, principal photography took place in Vancouver, British Columbia, in April of 2009, and shooting ended in July 2009, and then from there until right about November 2010 was when uh, post production ended. Mm. So yeah. it was quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But okay, cool. Well, then I'm just going to dig right into design, which is starting with um, director Joseph Kaczynski was very intentional when starting production of the movie that they knew they were going to be creating a digital environment because they're going to be inside the grid. Right. But he wanted it to feel as real as possible. So they ended up creating 15 physical sets um, using you know, real world materials, steel, glass, brick, things like that. And because Kaczynski said, quote, I wanted to build as much as possible. It was important to me that this world feel real. And anytime I could build something, I did. 
So I hired guys that I went to architecture school with, sidebar. Uh, previously, director Joseph Kaczynski has a history of architecture, which is oh, pretty cool. Yeah, interesting. Um, back to the quote. Uh, so he, I hired guys that I went to architecture school with to work on the sets for the films, and hopefully people who watch the film feel like there's a certain physicality to this world that hopefully they appreciate, knowing that the real architects actually put the whole thing together. So another thing that Kaczynski was very intentional about was that they did not want the grid to have any influence from the internet. And this is very specific because the server that the grid, so to speak, would have been housed on in this fictitious world would have gone offline in the 1980s, which is when the original Tron took place. Mm -hmm. So this movie takes place just a few, a few years after the original Tron. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kevin Flynn gets trapped inside and from there it's pretty well disconnected. He wanted it to not have any influence on the or from the Internet for this reason, stating that he wanted it to grow on its own server into something powerful and unique so that it, it just kind of naturally evolved over time. Then going to jump into practical effects a little bit. So when they were designing the suits. They were all made practically, which you touched on this a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of amazing production details regarding uh, the creation of these suits as well as the identity discs and a lot of other stuff. So I'm going to try and keep it brief. Um, but one thing that they kind of decided up front was that not only were they going to have to make these for real, but that they wanted them to light up for real, mm -hmm. that they could capture that in camera because they felt that it was going to take way too much time and money to, to do it all digitally. Not that they couldn't do it, but that it would just not only look better because you're capturing it in camera, but it would, it would save uh, them a lot of time, which I think probably was a smart decision considering that post-production took over a year. Right. Yeah. I was um, thinking the same thing. So what they ended up doing in order to light it was that throughout the suit, they had LED strips, uh, LED tape essentially is what it was that they put all throughout the suit. But LEDs are only one color, at least at that time. You can change them to a lot of different colors now with mm -hmm. the RGB strips. But they uh, decided that to really get the specific color that they want and have it diffuse appropriately on camera, they used uh, 3M vinyl that they just, they got the color that they wanted and they put it over the LEDs and it looked fantastic. So that's how they got the color and the light practically. And then just a couple other uh, details, they uh, ensured that all the zippers, seams, everything like that was to be hidden on the suits. Because if you remember when Sam first gets into the grid and the suit is put on him, it, it kind of just like scales its way up him. Exactly. It's not something he zips into. Exactly. So it, it's kind of like a self-manifesting suit. Mm -hmm. So they wanted that. They didn't want viewers to be able to point at the screen and be like, oh, look, there's a button, you know, yeah. things like that. Um, and then you already touched this, touched on this already, but um, that the light disc actually did attach to the suit uh, via magnets. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm going to skip all the details I had about the crowd because we already touched on that. So then jumping into, let's talk about character creation. So as they were kind of figuring all this out, they had worked on the script um, for a long time. It didn't go through a lot of rewrites. They just fine-tuned it over the course of about four-ish years. 
uh, talks of a tr- sequel to Tron first started around 2005. It wasn't official, but they started kicking around ideas, started working on things. And um, one of the main points was Clue. They were trying to figure out, you know, what's his motivation? Who is he? And they decided that they wanted him to be kind of an embodiment of how you look back on your younger self. Mm-hmm. So kind of emph- they, they played it up so that he was obviously evil right. um, so that he could be the villain. But they were just thinking back to you look back on your younger self and you kind of look at him as the guy that thought he knew everything. But in actuality, he knew nothing. Right. And I think um, Jeff Bridges character explains that well, too, because I think at the end um, when Clue and him are on that bridge, you know. Yeah. And um, Clue says, like, we were supposed to be perfect together, you know, Mm -hmm. and then he says, well, that's impossible. But and you wouldn't know that because I didn't know that when I created you and that kind of thing. Exactly. And I think that whole scene, like now that I know this, I didn't know that uh, back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like any time that I watched it, I never knew this until doing the research for the movie now. But I feel like that scene is a lot more powerful. Yes. Just knowing that like a clue is kind of like, I did everything you asked me to do. Mm -hmm. I executed it perfectly, you Mm -hmm. know, and we were supposed to build perfection together, blah, 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 whatever. And Jeff or or Kevin Flynn kind of tells him, he's like, yes, you did. Like Mm -hmm. recognizing he's, he's not like demeaning him or shooting him down. He's almost empathetic towards him and, right. and sympathetic. Like he, he's, he's kind of like lovingly talking to him. I yeah. mean, he is because he goes, he tries to give him a hug after right. they talk. And then yeah. that's when Clue turns. But. Yeah. So I think that's really awesome. And it especially resonates with me. Just like I feel like I'm at a point in life right now where I'm still very young. I'm only 25. But I just think back to who I was two years ago or 10 years ago. Like, and just not proud of like who I was in high school or things like that. And um, I think that's the case for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They look back on their life and they're like, man, you know, I, I was such an idiot or, or whatever. Right. And so it definitely resonates with me. And I think that's really cool that they incorporated that mm-hmm. as a story element. Yeah. But um, segueing off of that, uh, the creation of Clue. So in order to create that digital double, of Jeff Bridges. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of work. And Jeff Bridges is not the only uh, digital creation in this movie. There's lots of CGI shots. Right. But this is the first time that that effect was ever used in a big budget movie. Um, And I know if you look at it today, it kind of looks not as good. It looks like slightly like reminiscent of the Polar Express. Yep, that's what I was about to say. (laughs) Especially when you compare it to like Thanos. Right. Who is a completely CGI character. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing to remember. This is the first time that this was ever done. Right. And, and it was 13 years ago. Exactly. They, they, this would have been created in 2009. Mm-hmm. Oh, so 14. Yeah. So in that regard, it's like it really does hold up well, especially in still shots when he's not talking. It, it still looks pretty good. And I would even say that it looks better than CGI in some modern movies. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at The Flash, which I know you haven't seen and I haven't seen it either, but I've watched clips 
from on YouTube and stuff from the movie. Some of the shots in that movie, like they digitally created Nicolas Cage as Superman from the 90s and they recreated several people who no longer look that way anymore. Mm -hmm. And it looked horrible. Yeah. (laughs) And the director like tried to come out and say like, oh, that was intentional, blah, blah, blah. And who knows if that's true or if it's a PR spin and they kind of run it, ran out of money. Right. It's neither here nor there. The end of the story is, and all that really matters, is that this is a movie that was created in 2009 that people like to kind of point to now as like, wow, that really doesn't look that good. Mm -hmm. This still looks way better than anything in The Flash. Yeah. And on that note, it's like, despite Clue and young Kevin not looking like amazing, it still doesn't look bad. And I would say the rest of the movie just makes up for it so much so that it doesn't even matter. And it's kind of mind-boggling to think about this was kind of the creation of the de-aging process mm-hmm. Tron Legacy was, because it's all over movies today. Yeah. You know, it's like Robert Downey Jr. was a young Iron Man in Civil War for one scene, and they, they do it for Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury a bunch of times in the MCU, as well as Johnny Depp in the most recent Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got it down flawless now, but this is where it started. So I, I think that's pretty cool. I will say, I also think that um because we talked about this earlier how they did it with alan too yes um like i said earlier that i didn't realize that it was even supposed to be a younger version of him until this most recent time i watched yeah and i'm looking at a picture of it right now of the cgi yeah younger alan or tron yeah i don't think i would have guessed that it was cgi if i hadn't known that it was you know, yeah. Alan, a younger and it's version. only in a couple scenes, right? But I would agree 100%. It's very easily missed. And I think the majority of that is probably because the young Alan or Tron mm-hmm. doesn't talk a whole lot compared right. to Clue. But even still, he looks great. And I think yeah. that that's kind of what I'm hitting home on is just that like the still shots of Clue, like if you take a screen capture mm-hmm. of Clue or young Kevin, yeah. it, it still looks pretty good. Right. And I think that's really impressive. Kudos to them on that. Uh, And so then the last bit of information I have is on Daft Punk uh, and the score of the film, which I know you touched on this a little bit earlier. But um, wait, hold on a second. I got the cart in front of the horse. Back up. So did I say that it took two years and 10 companies to create uh, almost 1600 visual effects shots for Tron? Um, I don't remember hearing that. Well, yeah. So <laughs> it that's what it took to create the the digital effects in this movie. <laughs> so uh, very impressive. Yeah. Super crazy. Um, can't believe I skipped over that. But anywho. <laughs> so the score of this movie. Film score is very untraditional and incredible. Yes. In my opinion. So uh, there were a number of electronic music bands that were considered for the film. But Kaczynski eventually ended up picking Daft Punk. Daft Punk was highly interested in the film, and upon being contacted, director Kaczynski stated that um, they quickly turned the tables on him and they started interviewing him um, because they wanted to ensure that they were going to uphold the legacy of Tron because they were such huge fans of the original movie. That's awesome. So I was like, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And I feel like that really comes through in the movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, or I guess I should say in the score. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, Daft Punk are 
an incredibly talented group of uh, electronic musicians. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. They've released incredible music over, you know, a couple decades. They actually just recently broke up. Um, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, they, they disbanded the group, um, the two guys. But anywho, um, they're phenomenal. And so there's no doubt that they were going to do a good job from the get-go. Mm-hmm. But I feel like their passion for the original movie really is what sets this over the top. Because for me, I will say that like I, I wholeheartedly believe that a good score or a bad score can make or break a movie. Mm-hmm. That being said, I am not a guy who cares that much about movie scores. Like yeah, I, but I mean, when you get a movie, though, that has a good score, like a really good score, like I just think it like elevates it like 10 notches, like take Interstellar, for example, like yep. already a great movie. But the music, it like it just pulls you in. Yep. And I think I'd say the same for this movie, too. I agree. I think that, it, you know, I'm not somebody who really totes around like oh, you know, I can't believe the score on this movie is amazing or or whatever, you Mm -hmm. know, like I don't care that much about it. Um, And I don't really listen to scores at all. There are a lot of guys who like have a list like, oh, this is the best score ever. And they listen to it in their free time. That is not me. But this is one of the only scores I will willingly listen to in my free time. In fact, he was just listening to it before we started recording today. (laughs) I I literally did. I had to get myself pumped up. but. I love the music for this movie. Uh, I literally used to have one of the songs as my ringtone on my phone um, <laughs> when I was in high school. But um, I think that everything that I've just kind of been spilling out about how much I love it is shared across the board because they uh, Jaft Punk released the album Tron Legacy and it peaked at number six on the Billboard 200 with the album eventually going platinum. Wow. Yeah. So it sold over a million copies. I mean, it, it did incredibly well, but there's just something special about the music in this movie that even though it is digital, it also incorporates like a lot of violins and, and stuff like that. And it just, it sounds phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a lot of love and respect for the score of this movie. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I hardly ever say. Yeah. And really the only other movie that comes to mind immediately of like, wow, that's a great score is Interstellar. Yeah. That's about it. Mm-hmm. I, I can think of other good ones, but I'm talking about like like they're in their own league. Right. So that's all I have for production details. So would you like to start off with a score of one to 100 or do you want me to? Sure, I can start. Okay. Um, I still really need to make that list of what I've rated everything. Yes. But without remembering any of what I've rated other movies... Um, I'd probably say Tron is, uh, maybe a 90 for me. Okay. That I'm also going to give it an even 90. Yeah. Especially because I'm trying to be very impartial, mm-hmm. um, because I know like there are a lot of people who can watch this movie objectively mm-hmm. and score it based off of, you know, acting and directing and all that stuff. Right. I watched, I remember watching this movie when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. It came out in 2010, you said? Yep. So I would have been 12. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it with my brothers and my dad and it was awesome and my mind was blown mm-hmm. and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So I'm definitely partial to the movie and mm-hmm. it holds a sem- sentimental place in my heart. Yeah. Like no question about that. I definitely do recognize that the movie, like it doesn't have the best acting in all the scenes. Right. And it doesn't have the best dialogue or writing in all the scenes. 
But this also isn't a movie that's super dialogue heavy. Mm-hmm. And I think what really helps is that Jeff Bridges is one of the main uh, characters or main actors in in the cast. And he's a phenomenal actor. And actually, most of his screen time is spent as Clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clue has more time than Kevin Flynn. Yeah. And he does a phenomenal job playing Clue. He also does a great job playing a character foil of Kevin Flynn. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he is what helps kind of set the movie up. Uh, it, it, not bring it down. Right. I guess. Because I think Olivia Wilde also does a good job playing kind of this really innocent, like unknowing character. Mm-hmm. And I think Garrett Hedlung does a good job of what he was given. I, yeah. do, I don't think that his character was really written the best. Mm-hmm. And um, that being said, for all the negatives of any scene where it's bad dialogue or bad writing or bad acting, you know, whatever you want to say, is made up for tenfold with the, I know I've already said this about the original movie, but this movie is hands down a visual spectacle. Yes, uh, for sure. Like, this is one of the very few movies that I would say, like, you could watch the movie without sound and thoroughly enjoy it just because it's so incredibly beautiful. I mean, right. you know, it's this digital world that's kind of bleak, but it, I mean, it's just, there's no style that's like this. Mm-hmm. And then when you add on top of that, the phenomenal score from Daft Punk, it, it really just, it really makes for an incredible movie. And honestly, I think that if, if the writing had been just, just a, a tiny, tiny bit better, that this movie could have been on the same level as the original Star Wars when it was released. Because, and this is why I say that, I, I'm sure there are probably some people that are like, are you kidding me it, <laughs> when they hear that? But here's why. I'm, I'm a huge Star Wars fan myself. If you objectively watch the first Star Wars and every actor that acted in that movie, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, all those actors and actresses have said that George Lucas had no clue what he was doing. As far as writing, directing, he could not write dialogue to save his life. And if you go back and watch those movies, the dialogue sounds pretty bad. <laughs> but what what set Star Wars apart was the overall story. You had this, you know, awesome story of hope and good defeating evil. And more than anything, Star Wars was a visual spectacle. And then you had an amazing score from John Williams. And it's very much the same thing here in Tron Legacy, that for all the bad acting, bad writing, you have all these other uh, parts of the movie that are in a league of their own that just helps carry all those bad parts. Mm -hmm. So I I really, I I think that if they had fine-tuned the writing just a little bit more, this movie could have been huge. Mm -hmm. It's still great, though. I love this movie. Yeah. So is that all of your facts and everything? Or wait, we already... (laughs) Duh. We already rated it. So what I was going to ask you is what would be your favorite scenes? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's a hard question to answer. I, I think that one of the coolest scenes is when um, Sam first gets like taken into the grid, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I forget the name of the vehicle, but basically that like flying uh passenger carrier thing yeah Mm -hmm. it flies over and like lands and then the ground around sam like sinks away yeah and uh it i think it's a really really strong introduction to the grid Mm -hmm. um because you get like wow this is like a totally different world it's dystopian Mm sci-fi you know it and it's just super cool so i love the introduction there 
Um, I think for sure the arena battle. I mean, the light bike battle is amazing. The disc mm-hmm. war battle, like that's super cool. It's hard for me to say one scene that's my favorite just because the movie as a whole is just like really cool mm-hmm. <laughs> for me. But I would say probably those scenes. Um, yeah. Uh, what would you say? Um, I also really like when he first gets there. That's probably one of mine. Another one, I really like the light bike scene um when i mean it stinks that the majority of his teammates are killed off pretty right. fast but when it's just him and another guy left and you know like he's like yes. we have to work together and that kind of thing i thought that was cool just like yeah. seeing how they did end up working together and i mean it just takes me back to you know middle school when i would play the light bike game yes. with my friends yeah <laughs> i love that but um i think another scene that i liked was um like when he when it first shows him going into Flynn's arcade for the first time, like in the movie, yeah. um, I just really like that scene because it just the first time I watched it, I was like, OK, what is happening? And then, you know, yeah. when he turns on all the games and then he discovers this hidden room behind yeah. Tron and yeah. um, just like I just like the suspense that's there because like he sees the screen whatever that's called that's on the desk yep. and then like as he's doing it there's like this camera thing or i don't know that you would call it a camera because it's what it's like, like a laser yeah like a laser yeah um so it was just i just like the suspense in that scene and yeah. just how it kind of keeps you wondering what's going to happen next yeah another scene that i like i wouldn't say that this is like oh one of my favorite scenes but just from like a filmmaking standpoint I think a really cool shot in the movie um, is when uh, Kevin Flynn first disappears and the way they introduce that to the audience is just like this screen and it's like tons of TVs Yeah, and it's that is all cool. like the news, but not like, not like a flat screen of just different TVs like lined up together. This is like kind of a, an overhead, like almost like a helicopter pan view, Mm -hmm. like going through just this array of TVs that are spaced apart on a flat surface. Yeah. It's really unique, Mm -hmm. very memorable. And I I just think like that that was really creative and just a super cool shot. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah. I also love, I know we talked about this some already, but I love the wardrobe in this movie. Oh, yeah. Just the, the costumes of every character is really cool, I think. Yeah, I think. It's, I mean, I've already said this several times, but just the visual aspect of this movie is so incredible. The mm-hmm. suits, the light bikes, the identity discs, just the aesthetics of it all yeah. is really incredible. Also, it's like super simplistic and probably kind of dumb, but I want a jacket like the one that uh, Kevin and Clue are wearing when they when he first creates Clue, oh, yeah. like the black one with just the one just white the one white stripe light down light. it. Yeah, yeah. that That's that thing cool. is pretty cool. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> um, yeah. What well, thematically, one of the things I really like is um this kind of thread of like removing yourself from the equation. Mm-hmm. Like they first touch on that in the very beginning of the movie um, with Sam not taking any part of income. And then he decides, you know, he's going to show up and kind of rain on their parade uh, and release this super expensive software that they were going to profit off of. Mm-hmm. He's going to release it for free because that was his dad's wishes for the company. Yeah. And oh, by the way, our boy Killian Murphy makes a little appearance in there. 
Um, he plays Scarecrow in the original Batman Begins, and he plays J. Robert Oppenheimer in the new Oppenheimer movie. Why um, did I miss that? I don't know. I've pointed it out to you before. Did you not realize that? No. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a young Killian Murphy there, but um, he's wearing glasses and he has black hair and he's the one that says, relax, we've got it under control and everything. But I mean, he basically has no part in this movie, but he's, yeah. he's there for like just a few scenes. That's crazy that I didn't realize that, especially since we just saw Oppenheimer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So anyways. Um, I thought that was super cool that he's in there just because he's a great actor. But, um, you know, you have this thread of like removing yourself from the equation. The Sam jumps off the roof to get out of that situation. And then you have later when like uh, Cora picks him up, she talks about how Kevin removed himself from the equation. Because if you don't play the game, like it's a way that you can survive. Talking about how if Clue gets Kevin's identity disc, then he'll be able to get into the real world and try and take over the world because he's obsessed with perfection. And then later in the movie, uh, when they're at the end of the line club and the fighting goes on and everything, Mm -hmm. they get on the Sky Train. And then they, after the train arrives at the destination, um, Cora decides to basically be a distraction so that Flynn and Sam can get away. And Sam is like, what is she doing? And Kevin's like removing herself from the equation. And I think that's like for Kevin's character, when it finally clicked that in order for him to win, that's what he's got to do, but in a different way, meaning that he's got to get Cora out of there because she's the very last ISO and he's got to get Sam out of there because that's his son and he loves him and he's going to do anything he can do for him. And he has to not get back with Sam to the real world because he knows that the only way he can get Clue's attention is by distracting him with himself. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, it culminates in the final battle and that's exactly what Kevin does. He doesn't say it explicitly, but that's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And he has that sweet kind of dialogue with Clue, just kind of like a lost child, like, Right. You know, like, hey, you were doing your best. I never knew this. And, you know, that's why you didn't. Yeah. And it's okay, basically. Mm -hmm. And and so on and so forth. So I, I think it's kind of cool that that comes full circle in the climax of the movie and that it's not spelled out to the audience. Yeah. Because I've seen this movie a dozen times, probably. I didn't pick up on it until last night when I watched it in preparation for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's very cool. Yeah, I agree. Also, backtracking a little bit, I looked up a picture of Cillian Murphy and Tron. Killian Murphy. Kill- <laughs> Killian, sorry. It's easily mispronounced, but... Yeah, because it's a C. Yeah. Yeah, I used to pronounce it Cillian, and then I watched an interview, and he said it's pronounced Killian, okay, so... Okay, well, sorry. From the horse's mouth. Sorry, Killian. <laughs> Anyways, um, I never would have guessed that it was him. Really? It does not look like It looks exactly I, like him. I mean, I mean, he's got like a little stubble on his face and I've only ever seen him clean shaven and he's got glasses and the Bieber hairdo. He looks straight out of Batman Begins or The Dark Knight. That's exactly how he looked in those movies. See, I don't remember how he looked in those movies. Okay. I remember him being I guess in we'll them, have to but I don't him. remember. We'll what have he to rewatch like. him. Maybe we'll cover Batman Begins or The Dark Knight in season two. Sounds good because I've been wanting to watch that trilogy again. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, off topic. No, you're fine. I think, I mean, for me, I'm probably close to wrapped up on everything I want to talk about. Yeah, I'm good. Okay, cool. Well, I'll just say it again. This is one of my favorite movies. I'm so glad we covered it because this movie is so cool. And any excuse that I have to listen to the soundtrack again or watch the movie again, I'm going to take full advantage of. 
And I think that really speaks to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, same way that I feel about Interstellar, I can watch it, you know, three days in a row and never get tired of it. Yeah. It's really a testament to just good filmmaking. And I think that's that's really cool. I also really enjoyed just researching for this movie. Like I I enjoyed researching for all of them, but I just think that this one has the most in-depth and like some of the coolest like behind the scenes information and facts and things like that. Yeah. So Well, I mean, just like incorporating like the Comic-Con crowd into the movie. Yeah. Like you don't hear about stuff like that for films. Yeah. So that's very cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that wraps up tron legacy so thank you all for listening um please make sure to give us a like and uh subscribe to our youtube channel and you know give us a rating on spotify um it really does help just to kind of boost our podcast and help spread it some more to other people so we appreciate that and leave a comment too if you enjoyed listening. Um, next week, we are going to be hitting Apollo 13, which is... Nope, nope, nope. Next week, we're oh, going to be covering sorry. The Incredibles. The week after, <laughs> the week that, after that, we'll that hit Apollo 13. 13. Yes, yes, I'm ahead of the game. Yes. So yes, next week is The Incredibles. Sorry yes. about that. Yep. So all you Pixar lovers out there, get excited because we're going to be doing another Pixar movie and we're going to have... A guest in the studio again our second guest of the season who is an aspiring filmmaker yes so you can get excited for that john stole my thunder i was gonna announce that but oh, i'm sorry okay. i'm sorry it's all right <laughs> so anyways we will see you next week guys thanks for listening thanks guys bye